Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon, this is Free Culture Radio. Free Culture Radio neither promotes the use of any drugs nor condemns people for being involved in drugs. To the extent that drug use presents problems for individuals or society, those problems are made worse and more intractable when people who use drugs are treated as others and ignored, stigmatized, and even brutalized. The war on people who use some drugs has been going on for a very long time. There are some who think of it as a Reagan-era invention, but most credit Richard Nixon with starting it off back in June of 71. Actually, however, our foolish experiment with prohibition has been going on for more than a century. The very first drug prohibition law was enacted in 1875 in the city of San Francisco. That law banned opium smoking and opium dens and was intended to target the city's Chinese residents. Some other cities followed suit. Then in 1881, the state of California banned opium smoking. In 1909, the U.S. enacted the Smoking Opium Exclusion Act, which banned opium smoking nationally. Then in 1914, the U.S. banned non-medical opium and coca with the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act. So the war on people who use some drugs has been going on for more than a century. The war against the war on people who use some drugs is a rather more recent creation, but it also predates the Nixon administration. The earliest drug policy reform group I know of was called LIMAR, that's short for Legalized Marijuana, which was founded in the early 1960s, coincidentally in San Francisco. Recently, the San Francisco Public Defender's Office held a news briefing on harm reduction and other evidence-based alternatives to the war on people who use some drugs. We're going to hear from some of the participants. Leo Boletsky is a professor of law and health sciences at Northeastern University, and he's on the faculty of the University of California at San Diego School of Medicine. This is a very timely conversation, a conversation that's happening all over the country. And I think um, San Francisco has a special place as a, a laboratory of innovation. Um, but historically, I think uh, the first thing I wanted to point out that San Francisco is actually one of the cradles of the war on drugs, because in the 18 Starting in the uh, middle of the 19th century and up to the 1920s, San Francisco was uh, one of the places where anti-opium um, ordinances started to percolate and then they spread around the country. And that um, process was uh, fueled by racism uh, against uh, Chinese Americans um, and in many ways has been a harbinger of the war on drugs driven by um, misinformation, disinformation, and racism. And so um, just like um, in the 1920s, uh, the San Francisco Call led a, uh, which is a newspaper at the time, led a uh, disinformation campaign about opium and the role of Chinese Americans and uh, mis misogynation with white women, um, uh, misinformation continues to fuel the war on drugs and, and sort of punitive approaches, racist punitive approaches uh, to substance use um, and problematic drug use. So um, that misinformation continues to this day and um, in many ways has played a huge role in this um, current debate about fentanyl, the role of fentanyl in the current uh, sort of trajectory of the overdose crisis. Um, there's lots of misinformation about fentanyl, but I think one of the top 
uh, issues that San Francisco is dealing with right now is the rise in overdose deaths involving fentanyl. And I think it's worth pointing out, um, and as someone who studies this from a public health perspective, that uh, San Francisco is not alone in battling um, the rise in fentanyl-related overdoses. These overdoses are rising all across the West. Um, the Because of the way that drug um, trafficking dynamics work, um, the the fentanyl wave has hit East Coast first and then um, has been uh, spreading to the West Coast. And so all across the West Coast, as well as Colorado, um, Arizona, other places in the West are dealing with um, a, a major uptick in fentanyl uh, overdoses involving fentanyl. And this really um, highlights the, the kind of um, uh, the blame game that's being uh, inappropriately uh, sort of uh, the the blame being placed at the feet of, uh, you know, drug-related prosecutions in San Francisco um, has very little to do with the um, a rise in fentanyl-related uh, overdoses. As I said, you know, these are rising all over um, the West, regardless of the policies that are um, uh, being um, uh, supported by the the local uh, law enforcement. I think it's also worth pointing out that um, in San Francisco, the idea that you know somehow there was a pause in the war on drugs is also misinformation because um, the federal initiative for the tenderloin, which involves fifteen local um, and federal and state uh, law enforcement agencies has been in place since uh, 2019. I'm gonna uh, just pay, uh, put something in the chat about that initiative. This is a very intensive um, drug law enforcement in initiative in the Tenderloin um, and surrounding community and surrounding areas in San Francisco. And so the idea that, you know, somehow the former DA's policies um, you know, caused a complete stop to drug law enforcement in San Francisco is just not true. Um, the final thing that I'll say is from an empirical perspective, these kinds of interventions, these law enforcement interventions do not actually uh, dismantle as, you know, as kind of the, the go-to term that's used, dismantle drug trafficking organizations. Um, these organizations have proven to be very resilient. Um, and by attacking supply, um, what ends up happening um, from an empirical perspective is that drug markets uh, mutate and they oftentimes uh, produce more violence and um, increasingly compact and more potent drugs. So um, uh, this is a so-called um, iron law of prohibition, which drives uh, increased harm increased violence in drug markets as a result of crackdowns. And so the kinds of rhetoric that's being um, thrown around right now in San Francisco is likely to actually fuel the problem that, that is being purported to be solved. That was Leo Boletsky, professor of law and health sciences at Northeastern University and on faculty at the UC San Diego School of Medicine. Laura Thomas is director of HIV and harm reduction policy with the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. Thank you to Professor Boletsky for laying out the information about the history of the war on drugs, particularly here in San Francisco, where 
um, you know, as he described, the the first law prohibiting the use of a substance and criminalizing the use of a substance happened here in San Francisco, and it happened in the context of uh, racial control and xenophobia in particular. And I think um, we can't uh, we can't avoid the echoes of that in what is happening now in San Francisco. Uh, so as the public defender said, I work for the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. Um, we're celebrating our 40th anniversary this year. In addition to HIV testing and treatment, we also um, provide harm reduction services, syringe access, overdose prevention. Uh, we provide hepatitis C testing and treatment. Um, we provide uh, substance use disorder treatment through our Stonewall program and uh, including contingency management through our prop and prop for all programs. So we um, we are a treatment provider and a harm reduction provider. And in particular, we see the impact of uh, criminalization of drug use on our program participants. And we see the way in which increased criminalization, incarceration, um, affect their health and well-being on a daily basis and whether that is, um, uh, you know, needing to um, rush their substance use, hide their substance use, um, spending time in jail, uh, having a criminal justice history, all of these things make it um, harder for them to stay safe, harder for them to achieve recovery. and, you know, just again to echo some of what Professor Boletsky said, fentanyl is very much a symptom of prohibition. It's not the cause of the overdose crisis as much as a symptom of where we are uh, and what our drug policies have led to. And it is, uh, I think it's important for all of us to understand that as we, uh, as as San Francisco moves forward with increased uh, policing and criminalization, that those things are going to make the overdose crisis worse. And I I have great admiration and respect for folks who are speaking up and saying we need to be doing more around the overdose crisis in San Francisco. Uh, I really appreciate all the folks who are saying we've lost too many lives. That's absolutely true. And I really appreciate that. And we need to keep saying that. But my big concern is that we can't say we need to do something about overdose and then um, uh, begin or continue with policies that just make it worse. So some of the things that we know increase people's vulnerability to overdose are um, aggressive policing, uh, stigma and criminalization so that people hide while they're using substances, um, incarceration, the first 72 hours after release from incarceration are the most dangerous time for anyone who's using drugs in terms of overdose um, and uh, coerced treatment as well um, and enforced um, abstinence uh, will also make people more vulnerable to overdose. So uh, in time, it's facing a loss of some really essential treatment beds, including some of our very necessary uh, dual diagnosis beds. Um, We know what does um, address and prevent overdose fatalities, and uh, that's where the public and the treatment 
people in the harm reduction world have the tools uh, as opposed to the criminal legal system. We need to disinvest in what does not work, and that's the criminal legal system um, and policing. We need to invest in what does work. So supervised consumption services, um, the Department of Public Health rolled out an overdose prevention plan last week that has some really um, stellar recommendations that are very evidence-based. Uh, we know that increasing access to treatment, such as uh, Envision through Mental Health SF, um, we need to continue to invest in Mental Health SF and continue to expand those services and make them more accessible, um, including linguistically accessible. Um, and we need to, uh, in particular, provide housing, housing first. You know, the, the crisis on our streets is as much a housing, is, is entirely a housing crisis and not a substance use and mental health crisis um, uh, in that people would have very different experiences um, if they were housed. That was Laura Thomas, Director of HIV and Harm Reduction Policy with the San Francisco AIDS Foundation. She was speaking at a news conference on harm reduction and other evidence-based alternatives to the war on people who use some drugs that was held on October 12th by the San Francisco Public Defender's Office. We'll hear more in a moment. You're listening to Free Culture Radio. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Welcome back. Let's hear more from that San Francisco Public Defender's Office news conference on harm reduction and other evidence-based alternatives to the war on people who use drugs. Del Seymour is the founder of Code Tenderloin. You know, when I first heard the new term, newly used term, war on drugs, it sent shivers up my spine, as they say. Uh, I'm sitting here this morning as a veteran of the war on drugs in the 80s and 90s in San Francisco, in the Tenderloin. I've been in Tenderloin 38 years, spent 18 years heavily addicted to crack cocaine. I have 14 felony arrests in my record for selling and using crack cocaine. I don't believe any one of my arrests was over $5 a product. Uh, the, the, the repercussions I have from those 14 felony arrests, I recently tried to buy my first home after being in recovery for 14 years. I was rejected by the first three lenders, not because of my credit rate. My credit rating is 775, but because of my drug arrest. And I finally found the fourth lender who agreed to mortgage my home, but at a very high interest rate. Uh, so these things don't go away. You we would think they will go away. They don't go away. So I definitely do not. I'm not good with that term or even that strategy. Now, I am good with fighting fentanyl. Call it whatever you want. We need to fight fentanyl. I relate what we're doing here is kind of like if, if one of the major grocery stores was selling a poison product, we wouldn't go and arrest the grocery store. I, I mean, I mean, we wouldn't arrest the customers coming out of the store with that poison meat. We would arrest the grocery store. In the same term, I'm, we need to make our, our enforcement efforts against the major distributors. And with all of our investment in our police and, and, and our investigators, our, our fellow people, we should know who those major distributors are. All the people in, in the chain of command know who it is. So I don't understand why we don't know who the major di 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 uh, uh, distributors are. Now, there's another issue here that, I, that, that disturbs me. Whether you all have figured it out or not yet, 
San Francisco uniquely, and, and, and I'm very happy about it, happens to be the only city west of Chicago, Illinois, that has a major black leadership. Our mayor, our police chief, our district attorney, our public defender, our head of our city council, are all people of color. I'm seeing what's going on now is that the media and the San Francisco society is trying to break up this new level of power structure that we have here with our people of color. We don't need to be divided like this. Our, our only enemy is not the public defender or not the district attorney, it's fentanyl. We will never solve our fentanyl problem by being divided and coming up with different strategies. This is one city and one problem. I'm asking you all today, people that's on this call and people that's monitoring this call, including all the major departments, the mayor's office, the district attorney, the police chief, and the public defenders, let's go back to the table and sit down and do a collaborative strategy approach to how we're going to deal with our enemy, which is called fentanyl. I've been to more funerals in the last 12 months than I've been in all of my 75 years. I'm tired of going to fentanyl funerals. I lost my business partner two years ago, a business partner and friend for many, many years to fentanyl. I'm tired of funerals. I don't have, I, I, I just can't go to anymore. So please go back to the table and let's collaborate this and not have dueling press conferences and, and, and dueling new articles in the newspaper. We got one enemy and it's fentanyl. Let's realize this and do this diplomatically and collaborative. Thank you for your time. That was Del Seymour, founder of Code Tenderloin. You're listening to Free Culture Radio. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. We're listening to portions of a news briefing held October 12th by the San Francisco Public Defender's Office to discuss harm reduction and other evidence-based alternatives to the war on people who use some drugs. Now, here's Randolph Holmes, MD, Medical Director for the Los Angeles Centers on Alcohol and Drug Abuse. When we talk about overdoses, uh, we're talking really about two classes of drugs. We're talking about opiates, uh, which for the most part is fentanyl, and we're talking about stimulants, which for the most part is is, uh, methamphetamine. So we do see some opiates, uh, opiate overdoses with heroin and, and pain pills, but about 70% of the opiate deaths that we're seeing now, um, the overdose deaths are due to fentanyl. And, and the same with stimulants. Uh, we see about the majority of the, of the deaths related to stimulants are, are to methamphetamine, some with cocaine, but for, for the most part, we're talking about fentanyl and methamphetamine. And the medical community has a number of treatment options uh, that we, we offer people and we, and we try and, and try and encourage people to take advantage of. Uh, as far as the, the fentanyl, the, the opiates, uh, there are three drugs which are now approved by the, uh, the FDA. The first being methadone, which we all know about. It's been around more than 40 years, uh, prescribed in a methadone clinic or a, a opiate treatment program. They're called narcotic treatment program given daily as a liquid, um, very effective at reducing. We see about a 50% reduction or more in overdose deaths in people who are on methadone. And the data has been very clear that this is a very good drug, kind of our gold standard, um, used in pregnancy as well as, as in, in non-pregnant people. The, the next drug is a drug called buprenorphine. We've probably heard of the name Suboxone. It's a tablet or a film. It's also available as an injection, but you put this under your tongue, let it dissolve in your mouth. Uh, people take it every day, sometimes several times a day. It can be dispensed and given as a prescription. You can pick it up in a pharmacy. 
Uh, it's covered under all the, the state Medi-Cal programs and whatnot, so it's, 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 the cost is not an issue. Again, the data is very clear that we have a, a greater than 50% reduction in overdose deaths in people who go on these medications. Uh, they, they really greatly improve our, our ability to treat this condition. Uh, the third drug for opiates is, is, a, is an, uh, usually an injectable, a drug called naltrexone, which blocks the effects of opiates. Um, it's also available in a pill. Usually we use it as injection once a month. Very effective uh, in, in treating, and, and we use this a lot in our population of people coming out of incarceration. Uh, the, the prisons and, and jails would give them an injection uh, you know, a week or so before they leave uh, incarceration. There's a very high risk of people uh, in incarceration overdosing when they get out because they're relatively naive to, to opiates. They haven't used them in a while. And, and so and so this blocks their, their ability to, 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 to get high or to have an overdose from the opiates and will give them a connection to, to get more as they come out. So we have three medicines available, which greatly reduce the risk of overdose death. As far as methamphetamine, uh, we don't have any current FDA approved medications the most effective treatment is a, is a treatment called contingency management, which is done in a group setting. Uh, this does not have to be done by a physician. Uh, treatment programs use this. It involves a, a reward system for behavior. People come in in a group and they do a, a, a usually a urine drug test. And if they're negative for, for methamphetamine, they're given a reward. And uh, surprisingly, it works very well. Again, tremendous reduction in, 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 in uh, methamphetamine use. Uh, the data is very clear. This has been used in the, in the Veterans Administration a lot of our studies uh, on, on, on use of contingency management and other behavioral things come out of the VA. They've been using this for some time. Uh, we're starting in California. Uh, the governor signed a bill to allow programs to be developed. Uh, we're starting to, the, to, to phase this in here in Los Angeles County uh, using contingency management to treat stimulant use disorder, which is, a, which is a, actually a larger problem uh, in our patient population than, than our opiates. And, and uh, we do see a number of people uh, dying from various cardiac complications from methamphetamine. So um, I'm happy to take any more questions, and uh, I, I really appreciate everyone being here and, and uh, looking forward to some questions. Thank you. That was Randolph Holmes, MD, Medical Director for the rather badly named Los Angeles Centers on Alcohol and Drug Abuse. While we still have time, here's Vitka Eisen, President and CEO of HealthRight360. So my name is Vitka Eisen, and I'm the CEO of HealthRight360. We're one of the largest providers of substance use disorder treatment to low-income Californians in the state. The organization I lead has been serving people for over 50 years. We cared for over 44,000 people last year. I myself have over 35 years experience working with people who use drugs in a variety of, variety of settings, including jails and prisons. And I'm also a former heroin user. So contrary to wishful thinking, actual research shows that coerced treatment interventions increase the likelihood of a recurrence of drug use recidivism, and overdose death. In addition to the generational damage inflicted on black and brown communities, the war on dr drugs resulted in an entire treatment system that became dependent on coercion rather than innovation, science, skill, and empathy. I often like to say that the treatment system became addicted to coercion, and that's a problem. People who neither want nor are seeking treatment will continue to use drugs in their homes if they had them, their cars if they had them, the streets, in treatment programs, in jails and in prisons. I've been a direct provider of treatment in jails and prisons during the time when the prison population exploded because of drug war policies. UCLA did an evaluation of the in-prison coerced treatment program 
in California that found that individuals that paroled from the treatment program to the community had the exact same rate of recidivism as a matched control group of parolees who did not have in-prison treatment. However, those who paroled from prison directly to a treatment program in the community, and this was a completely voluntary option for them. It was not a condition of their release or parole. It was voluntary. This group had a significant reduction in recidivism. So let's play these current policy proposals out. A person on the street is arrested for using drugs, something he or she is doing because they don't have a home in which to use drugs privately, and neither do they have sanctioned indoor supervised consumption spaces. They are offered treatment or jail. They choose treatment. Provided they can get a bed quickly, they have around a 50% chance of leaving treatment within the first 14 days, and this is generally true for all clients in treatment. They return to the streets facing a higher risk of overdose, or they go to jail. Jail's still up. People are released, again, facing a higher risk of overdose death. We've been down this road again and again. Treatment is effective. It's not effective at the same time and in the same way for everybody. Rather than forcing people into treatment, we should follow the experts and not one person's experience whose recovery journey is relevant only to them or as researchers would say, an N of one, but experts like the head of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, Dr. Nora Volkov, the nation's top researcher on substance use, who says, quote, the data do not show that it's beneficial to put someone in jail or prison or force them against their will to go to treatment. The magnitude of this crisis demands out-of-the-box thinking and willingness to jettison old, unhelpful, and unsupported assumptions about what treatment and recovery needs to look like. Among them is the traditional view that abstinence is the sole aim and only valid income uh, outcome sorry, of treatment, addiction treatment. So let's come together and create a broad network that helps keep people who use drugs connected and engaged in care. That includes low barrier wellness hubs and drop-in centers, supervised consumption spaces, high quality volunteer, voluntary treatment with easy access. That includes medication for addiction treatment and other evidence-based interventions like contingency management. Let's afford them safe and stable transitional housing and permanent supportive housing. Let's pilot safe supply. Coercion is not the answer, connection is. We need to create a truly connected safety net, not a dragnet for people with problematic drug use. That was Vitka Eisen, president and CEO of HealthRight360, speaking at a news briefing held by the San Francisco Public Defender's Office on October 12th. You know, I've been involved in drug policy reform since the Reagan administration. I have seen a lot of changes over the years, yet the war on people who use some drugs still continues. A march of folly once begun is very slow to stop, but stop it must. Now, my demands are simple. We need safe supply, we need safe spaces in which to consume, and we need to decriminalize people who use drugs. Simple. Well, simple to state. The details, uh, those have to be worked out. But those three goals, that's the direction we need to be headed in. And we are on the way. The going may seem slow sometimes. Oh, lordy, and it seems slow sometimes. But we just have to keep our eyes on the prize. We will get there. For now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Free Culture Radio. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. A big thank you to everyone out there fighting for civil rights, human rights, and social justice. And thanks especially to you, dear listener, for your support. You make it all worth it. 
Free Culture Radio is a volunteer production for community radio syndicated via the Pacifica Foundation Radio Network's audio port service. Theme music for Free Culture Radio is composed and performed by Tom Nickel and Four Dimensional Nightmare. Free Culture Radio is available as a podcast or direct download. Find links at the website kboo.fm slash freeculture. And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Doug McVeigh. We'll be back in a month to continue our examination of drugs, drug cultures, and the influence of drugs on society. Thanks again for listening. This is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long! <laughs>